All right, let's read our passage together. Galatians 2, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Paul writing, he says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we do not want to be the types of believers, the kinds of believers who nullify the grace of God. Just as Peter was slipping into legalism and hypocrisy and nullifying the grace of God through his actions, communicating to people that to be a real Christian, you have to believe in Jesus plus Lord, we ask and pray that you'd protect us from that kind of false gospel. And Lord, the life that Paul describes here, we pray that we could live it. So teach us, Lord, from your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned it in my prayer, but I'll say it again. You have to remember the context of the words that we just read together. I wasn't here last week. I was teaching at a church down in Southern California and visiting my daughter uh, who's in college down there. Uh, So Pastor Matt shared, so it's been two weeks since we've been in the book of Galatians. And what we saw two weeks ago is that there was a moment, Paul tells us, when Peter visited the beautiful church in Antioch. I mean, it was an amazing church. It was described in the book of Acts as uh, something where when you saw it, you were seeing the grace of God. There were just people with beautiful testimonies, beautiful stories, Jew and Gentile coming together under one roof in fellowship together, loving each other. It was just a powerful wave of the Spirit and move of God. And eventually, Paul tells us in our last passage, Peter visited the church in Antioch. And Peter's presence at first only added to the beauty of the church in Antioch because this great apostle, this you know, main man uh, in Jesus's team, he was willing himself as well to just dwell freely with the Gentile believers in the church in Antioch. He would eat with them. He spent time with them. It was just a beautiful um, thing to behold until Peter began to be fearful of the legalists uh, back in Jerusalem. He worried about what they would think about him no longer regarding the Jewish dietary laws any longer. And for fear, Peter began to withdraw, to slink back during the mealtimes. And pretty soon, every other Jew in the church in Antioch, including Barnabas, had gone along with Peter in his hypocrisy. And Paul, watching all of this, knew that he had to speak up. The the very gospel, the very heart of the gospel was at stake, in the balance. Uh, He knew that through their actions, even though they weren't saying you needed to believe in Jesus plus keep the Jewish dietary laws, their actions were preaching such a false gospel. And so Paul spoke out and he told Peter 
in front of everyone in chapter 2, verse 14, that Peter was not living in line with the gospel. He was not living out his gospel life. And as Paul confronted Peter, out of Paul's heart began to flow beautiful teaching about the life the gospel is meant to produce. Uh, We saw a couple of weeks ago that it begins with merely being being justified by faith in the work of Christ. There's no work that we can do to be saved. It's the work of Jesus that saves us, and we place our faith and trust in his work. But after we receive justification, what does life look like? That was Paul's issue with Peter. Peter was justified. Peter believed the gospel. Peter was a saved man, as saved as anyone could ever get, but Peter was not living in line with that gospel message. And so Paul explains in the passage that we just read today what this gospel life looks like, the beauty of a life that is lived in line with the gospel. It's a life that Paul says is free before God. It's no longer trying to relate to God based on a legal code some set of external ethics, some list of requirements, but it's a life that's now set free. It's just enjoying and experiencing God and responding to God's goodness in their lives. It's also a life that is crucially, vitally, tangibly, really wrapped up and connected to Jesus. Uh, The way the Bible speaks of it or Paul speaks of it is it's a life that is in Christ. It is placed in Jesus. It's identified with Jesus's death and burial and resurrection. And it's a life that is every day lived by faith where we merely place our trust again in the Lord. The same way that you began in the Christian life is the way that you continue in the Christian life. You begin by faith and you continue every single day. As the Bible says, the just shall live, the righteous shall live by their faith. All right, so those are the three things I wanna talk to you about today. So let's think about this first element of gospel life, life in line with the gospel. Here it is, number one, it is a life that is free and for God. This life has been released, in other words, from relating to God, as I said, through a legal code, but that freedom is now used to live completely for God. Like I've said before about the story of the Exodus way back in the second book of the Bible. When God set the people of Israel free, he really didn't set them free. He said, let my people go that they may serve me. That's the way our freedom works in Christ. We're set free so that we can live to God, so that we can serve God. In short, the person enjoying gospel life is a person who is enjoying God. I mean, if you think about what the gospel is, the gospel is a message of how God sent his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would be a recipient of everlasting life. That means to be reconnected to God himself. So a person enjoying gospel life is a person who is enjoying God. Um, Paul said it this way. Let's read verse 17 to 19 again. We're gonna read through the whole passage one more time as we move throughout the text today. 
Well, Paul said, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, as I said, Paul had already told us in verse 15 and 16, which we studied two weeks ago, that we are justified in Christ through simple faith in Christ and not by our works in any way. But there were always people who followed Paul around and said, your message is going to lead to a lot of sin. Uh, your message is going to lead to people living a life of disobedience to God. There were, there were these people that were really worried about what would be produced with this radical gospel uh, that Paul preached. That's one of the ways that you know you're preaching the actual, real, true gospel is if people have that kind of beef, if they misunderstand what you're saying and they think, oh, you're teaching license. But that was the idea. The accusation that was brought against Paul in his gospel was, look, Paul, if we're completely forgiven, due to the work of Christ alone and not due to our response and not due to our obedience, why would we be obedient to God in the future? In other words, if someone has been justified by Christ, sins, is it because justification by faith promotes that life of sin? Paul's answer at first is real clear. He just says, certainly not. That's what he says at the end of verse 17. This is a phrase that he uses all throughout the book of Romans, certainly not, at the accusation that the gospel he preached leads to sin and license. In other words, to Paul, he says, Jesus is not a promoter of sin. Jesus is not a servant of sin anyway. Jesus was slaughtered in order to rescue us from sin our sin, not as a way to recommend a life of more sin. And what Paul knew, he said in verse 18, is that if he himself rebuilt the old life of sin, he was not proving that Jesus or Jesus's message was at error. He says, I'm only proving myself to be a transgressor. I'm the one in that case with the problem, but Jesus and his gospel they're good to go. To Paul, the accusation that justification by faith alone creates a permissive attitude, to Paul, that was a fundamental misunderstanding of what occurs when someone trusts in Christ, when justification occurs. You see, people who think that the pure gospel of grace that Paul preached will lead to license they think that what happens to you is just some technical but not real event. You know, like technically you're forgiven by God. Technically you're made new. Technically these things happen to you, but not actually, not really. Maybe someday something real will happen to you, but not quite yet. But for Paul, there was nothing technical about what happened to him when he was justified by faith. He was radically transformed. He knew that justification produced real, tangible, actual, he calls it death to the law. He died to the law when he believed in Jesus, he said in verse 19, so that he could live to God. In other words, the justified person 
has been fundamentally, in Paul's mind, changed. So to return to the old way of life after a change like that was inconceivable in the mind of Paul. So get this in your mind and in your heart. If you believe in Jesus today, what Paul is saying is that you also, like him, have died to the law, died to a legal code way of relating to God so that you might live to God. What was it that, according to Paul, set you free at first? He says it was death. Death that then led to resurrection so that you could live to God. Maybe a way to illustrate this is to imagine um, that you got caught committing some serious crime. Maybe you robbed a bank or something like that, and they caught you. They've got video footage. They've got uh, evidence. They've got eyewitness testimony. And so the case is stacked against you. There's no way that you're going to get off. You're going to be declared guilty. And imagine in the middle of the trial, uh, you die. Suddenly, you die. Uh, The trial is not going to continue on. They're not going to bring your corpse into the room and say, you know, we I know he's dead, but we justice must be served. No, you have died, and the law no longer has an effect or power over your life. That's what happens to your relationship with the legal code way of relating to God when you believe in Jesus. You die to it. It's over because you die. Paul uses a different analogy in Romans chapter 7. He uses an analogy from marriage. Uh, There in the early verses of Romans chapter 7, Paul says that uh, it's like a woman who is married to a man. She's bound as long as he and she are alive, she is bound to that marriage. But if he were to die, then she is free from the obligation of that marital contract, and she's free, Paul says, to remarry. But then Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that it wasn't the law that died, the husband that died, but that we died, but that through Jesus we came back to life, and now we are free, free to connect to Jesus. We can belong to him. And then he says, so that we can live, Romans 7, 1, 6, by the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. The, the new way of the Spirit, to merely live before God, to enjoy God, to be living life for God in his pleasure. And that new way of the spirit, that's what Paul is getting at when he says, we've died to the law so that we might live for God. This is important because before Paul became a Christian, he was a pretty religious person. Uh, He'd memorized a lot of the Bible, if not the entire Old Testament. He was trying very hard to be obedient to God, to do the things that God required. But when Paul was doing that, he was not actually doing it for God. He was not living to God in that moment. And in that moment, before Jesus came into his life, Paul was living for himself. God was a tool that he was using to try to gain through certain actions 
God's pleasure or reward practically, experientially upon his life. But when Paul became a Christian, when he believed in Jesus, his position before God became firm, unalterable. To be in Christ means your position cannot be altered. To be in Christ also means that your position cannot improve in any way. Have you considered that? That because you're in Christ Jesus, if you're a believer today, your position before God cannot improve in any way. It's unalterable, unchangeable because of Jesus, but it cannot improve because of Jesus either. Jesus holds the highest position before the Father, and that's the position that you hold if you believe in him. So Paul realized that he had been set free at that point to obey God out of not law, but love, to live for the one who died for him and loved him. If you've believed in Jesus, you also are now alive to God and free to live in response to God and for God. You're free to simply enjoy God. Now, legalists will always abound in the church who will try to drag you back into law, code, conduct with God, but the gospel has set you free to live in a love response to him. This Thursday, of course, is Thanksgiving, and a happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope you have a great day that day. But I can maybe illustrate what I'm trying to say about living before God and the freedom before God by painting the picture of two different Thanksgiving tables. Let's imagine a first where the father, sort of the elder statesman of the family, is a harsh and vindictive and judgmental person. You can imagine what it's like to be a child sitting at that table, even as an adult. Uh, you're fearful. Everything that you say can be used against you. You give a report on what's happening in your life, and it's clear that he's assessing and judging you for who you are and the decisions that you've made. He makes comments that tear you down and disappoint you. There's nothing free about that table. You're surviving that kind of time. You're surviving that kind of moment, waiting until you can get outside and take a breath. But imagine a second table where the patriarch of the family is loving and gracious, caring. He knows that you're not a perfect person, yet he loves you, he cares for you, he's approved you. And as you sit there, he cares about you. He's interested in you. There's a freedom in a table like that. That's, I think, a little illustration of what Paul is describing here. When he became a believer, he died to the law so that he could live for God. He could experience who God is. All right, but the second aspect of gospel living I want to hold out to you today from this text is that it is a life that is totally identified with Christ. It is a life that is totally identified with Christ. In other words, the person who believes the gospel, who trusts in Jesus's work to justify and save them before God, that's a person who God has connected to Jesus's life and death and resurrection, and radically so. Let's read what Paul said at the beginning of verse 20. Look at what Paul said. He said, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is an astounding announcement that Paul makes. This, to be frank, is an announcement that many times churches struggle to even talk about or even mention. Positional Christianity is often not even mentioned in many pulpits in America. But what Paul is saying here is that when you trust in Christ, when you believe in Jesus, God takes you and it's as if you were, to quote Paul, crucified with Christ. In the mind of God, that's what happened to you through belief in Jesus. It's as if you, as your old person, died on the cross with Jesus. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. Paul alludes to this, not just here, but elsewhere, expanding on it in places like Romans 6, verse 4, where he said, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In other words, we were identified completely, immersed into the death of Jesus in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, you've been fully immersed into his death, fully immersed into his burial, so that you can be fully immersed in the newness of life that comes through his resurrection power. Just imagine that. It's a wild truth. Not only did you die to the law, but this new life came rushing in. As a Christian, your old life is gone and your new life is found in Christ. You're totally identified with Jesus and totally identified in Jesus. As Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So if you're in Christ, you are new. The old creation, the old person, the old man or woman, according to Paul, has passed away. Why has it passed away? Because it was crucified on the cross with Jesus. Behold, the new has come. In other words, Paul knew, and we should know, that the old self, the self-righteous, self-centered, weak, needy, dead in trespasses and sins, righteousness as filthy rags person, that person, once you believe in Jesus, is gone. They've died. Now you're made new if you believe in him and placed into Christ as a new creation. If a dove is being hunted by a hawk, a dove has to, you can't fight back. It's got to find a place of refuge, a place to hide, a place where it's safe. And so a dove will often find a cleft in a rock or in a mountain. In the rock, the dove is safe from the predator. And this is the case for us as Christians. We are safe because we are in the rock. We are in Christ. We're absorbed into him. We're totally identified with him and therefore protected and alive in him. And Paul felt this is what had happened to him. He died with Jesus and he no longer lived. It was Christ living in him. That's what he said. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul's personality or Paul's personhood were 
suppressed. Uh, But what it does mean is that even his love response to God was enabled not by Paul's energy, not by his own energy, but by the energy of Christ living within him. Jesus had made himself at home with Paul, and Paul drew upon the resources of Christ to obey God. And by, by the way, this is something that Jesus had promised before he went to the cross. You know, there's the great conversation that Jesus had with his disciples after the events of the upper room, uh, where he had his last supper with his disciples, and before the three hours of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can read what they talked about in John 14 through 17. And there, Jesus promised his disciples that a day would come where he would live inside of them. He said things like this, John 14, verse 19 to 20, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And these statements were actually a commentary on something that Jesus had said earlier. He said in John 14, 15 to 17, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I'll ask the Father. And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. If you could leave that verse on the screen for just a moment, Notice what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to depart and I'm going to ask the Father for something. And he's talking to his disciples. He says, I'm going to ask the Father to give you another helper. That word another uh, means another of the same kind or quality. There was a different word in the Greek language to depict another of a lesser or different kind or quality. But this is Jesus says, another helper of the same kind and quality of myself. Wouldn't it be nice to have Jesus all the time at your side? I mean, that, that'd be amazing. Like, Jesus, we're hungry. Well, go cast your uh, net out in the lake, and there'll be tons of fish for you. Jesus, we need to pay taxes. Well, there's another fish with some tax money inside of it. You know, Jesus, you know, I mean, it would have been amazing to, to be with Jesus, You know, Jesus, there's a demon-possessed person. We really don't know what to do. (laughs) Well, don't worry, I got this one. Like, it'd be so great to have Jesus with you. But what he says to the disciples is, there's another helper of the same kind and quality that I'm gonna ask God to give you, the Father to give you. He calls him there in verse 15 or 16, the spirit of truth. And then he says, you know him already, disciples, Because right now he dwells with you, and one day he will be in you. When Jesus rose from the dead, one day he breathed on his disciples after his resurrection, and he said, receive now the Holy Spirit. I consider myself really lucky because when I first started walking with the Lord, some of my first mentors and teachers, they taught me a lot about the indwelling and enabling presence of the Holy Spirit. And I I learned a lot about how the Holy Spirit empowered the church and indwelled the church and how he could empower and indwell me. And I immediately was open to the Spirit of God gifting me and calling me and using my life. 
The analogy that they often gave was to say, Nate, you're like a, you're like a vessel, like a pitcher. And before you were a Christian, the Holy Spirit is like another pitcher of water, a larger pitcher that's kind of knocking up against you, convicting you, helping you realize that you need Jesus and to open up your heart to him. But then, Nate, when you believed in him, the Spirit filled you, came to live inside of you. Your cup was full, the Spirit indwelling you. But then, Nate, there will be moments where you need the Spirit to help you to minister to other people, not just to help you to live the Christian life personally, but to minister to others. And in those moments, when you ask, the Spirit will overflow you so that he comes out of your life and touches and ministers to others. I remember hearing those lessons and being so blown away. I remember I was 18 years old, and I initially asked, like, is, it, is this free? <laughs> you know, like, what's the catch, you know, kind of thing. But to learn that Christ had paid it all and that I needed to, by faith, trust that the Spirit of God wanted to indwell and empower me in life. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. This beautiful truth was foreshadowed but never fulfilled in the Old Testament era. In the Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for periods of time, but then depart, withdraw. Uh, so you'd have uh, erratic behavior oftentimes. Uh, you'd have Abraham who had the faith to believe that God would give him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, but then seemingly almost in the next moment, uh, he would begin to try to fulfill that promise from God with sinful activity. Uh, or you'd have Moses who, by the power of God, with the rod of God in his hand, is delivering the people of Israel from their captivity in Egypt only to once they're in the wilderness through a fit of anger, misrepresent God by striking the rock twice. Or David killing Goliath only to later sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and the entire nation of Israel. It wasn't until Jesus came and stood in the waters of the Jordan River in Israel, freshly baptized by his cousin John, that the Spirit descended upon a person, and remained upon that person. Jesus did everything by the power of the Spirit. And his death and burial and resurrection now make it possible for us to depend on the Spirit's strength for life today. We can say with Paul, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. But to have this there must be a sense of need. It might be positionally true, but unexperienced if you have no sense of need before God. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus wrote letters through the Apostle John to seven churches in modern-day Turkey. And the last letter was written to the church in Laodicea. It was a church that was filled with Christians who felt that they had no needs before the Lord. They were smugly self-sufficient. They did lots of othering. The problems were out there, but were not in their own hearts. 
But Jesus saw their spiritual poverty and confronted them about it. He wanted them to become desperate for his help. And so he said to them in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is most often quoted as an evangelistic verse. If you don't know Jesus, he's standing at the door of your heart and knocking. But in context, it has nothing to do with unbelievers. It has everything to do with believers who had pushed Christ out because of their self-sufficiency. But Jesus wanted them to know that if they turned to him, he was at the door waiting to come in and strengthen him. Uh, So brothers and sisters, uh, gospel living, it's found completely in Christ. But let me say one last thing. Number three, gospel living, it's for God, it's in Christ, but Paul also tells us it's daily by faith. Daily by faith. Uh, In other words, it's a life of continual, ongoing, morning by morning, moment by moment dependence upon Christ. I'm sorry if somebody told you that you could just get saved and just be off to the races on your own, in your own strength and in your own power. That's not the way it works. Christianity is a daily dependence upon the Lord. Christian living, in other words, is meant to continue in the same way that it began. How does it begin? By faith. And it continues that way. You receive justification that way, but you're also to receive sanctification to walk every day by simple faith. Look at what Paul wrote at the end of verse 20. He says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, what, what this statement shows us is that Paul still felt responsible for himself. Even though he died with Jesus and no longer lived because Christ was living in him, Paul knew that he still had a life to live in the flesh. Some of you might have been a little bit worried about this with Paul's statement, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And you might have thought to yourself, that sounds like a big excuse for a lot of stuff. You know, like, oh, I'm sorry I hit your car in the church parking lot. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. (laughs) You know, he's not a good driver. (laughs) No, Paul knew, I still have a body that I have to inhabit and a life I have to live. This is the challenge, by the way, I think that faces every Christian at some point or another. We know we're justified. We know these incredible, majestic things about ourselves that the Bible declares. We died with Jesus. We're new creatures in Jesus. We're also very conscious we have these bodies. This body has appetites and desires that are sometimes contrary to God's wise commands. And many of us grow really tired of that, really weary because of the tendencies of our bodies. I've had many who have told me over the years, it feels like a war that will never end. But be encouraged. There is a day coming where the king of kings comes and the war will be over. We will receive new bodies that are impervious even to the slightest whiff of temptation. And as you experience the weakness today in your own frailty and in your own body, at least in part, let it be a signpost to you, pointing you forward to that moment where the battle will be won and where the struggle will be no more. But even if we have this hope, 
What do we do right now, today? Well, Paul said that we have to live this life in the flesh every day by faith, he says in verse 20, in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, there's partly faith in what Christ has done for us, that even in our worst moments, we have to consider that Christ died for us, that we died with him. We've been made new in his sight. But second, there's faith in what Christ can do for you. And a dependence every day that says to the Lord, Lord, here's a fresh day where I need your strength, I need your help, I need your guidance, I need you to sustain me once again today. I trust you again for your power and your resources. I think sometimes we overcomplicate life by forgetting about this simple and daily need to trust in Christ. Uh, in, in my house, I'm kind of the, uh, I'm the IT guy in my house, you know, so I have me and my wife and my three daughters, you know, I'm kind of the go-to, like, problem solver when it comes to anything electronic or on the internet or whatever. I call it dadministration, so it's dadmin, you know, that's what my kids say, dad, I got a dadmin thing for you, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I've got, I've got a couple of first moves when somebody like, hey, my phone won't charge or I, you know, my laptop won't turn on. I got a couple of first moves that I do. The, one of the first moves is I ask them, have you tried to restart it? That fixes a lot of things right off the bat. They're like, oh, it's working. I'm like, yep, I'm that good, you know. <laughs> but the second thing, and I've learned this over time, is I check to make sure that it's actually plugged in. Because I can't tell you how many times I've been like working, I don't know, I can't figure, and then you like follow the cord to the back behind the desk and like, oh, it's not plugged in, you know. It's the simplest thing. And sometimes it's the simplest things that need to be fixed. Sometimes our issues don't really require a big complicated answer, but they stem from a lack of simply plugging into the power and resources of Christ by expressing daily trust in him. I guarantee you, you get off track with that, problems will rush in. Now, Paul was motivated to do this, he said, because Christ loved him, he said in verse 20, and gave himself for him. Jesus, Paul knew, loved Paul, gave himself for Paul, and the same is true for us. But here's my question. Why, why is Paul saying this right here? Every day, I'm going to trust the Lord. Every day, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who by the way, he loved me, and he gave himself for me. Why is he recounting that here? He could recount that anywhere. Why here? Well, I think in part, Paul is saying, hey, Jesus is trustworthy to place your faith in every single day. But I think secondly, he understands that legalists love to highlight not the love of Christ, but our own love. They love to highlight the earnestness of your works, even the earnestness of your trust. You know, you better, there's belief, but then there's really believing. There's really having strong faith. You better be really serious. You better show God how earnest you really are. But Paul was not content with that. He wanted to highlight the earnestness of Christ, the earnestness of Jesus. Uh, each year, my family, we like to watch um, this old cartoon, this old uh, 
Peanuts gang cartoon right around Halloween called It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like the most rudimentary animation you could ever see, but it's cute, cute little voices and everything. Not as cute as the Christmas one, but uh, Linus in that episode, he uh, believes in this figure called the Great Pumpkin. And it's kind of a spoof or a parody on Santa Claus. And the idea is, is that every Halloween, the great pumpkin shows up. And he shows up to the most sincere pumpkin patch that he can find. And so again, it's a spoof on Santa Claus. Like, you got to really believe, you know. And if you don't believe, then he won't show up. So he looks around for a sincere pumpkin patch. And in the episode, he's like... This is the most sincere pumpkin patch. Uh, There's not a sign of hypocrisy anywhere in this pumpkin patch. Surely the great pumpkin is going to show up. And And he never does, of course. Year after year, Linus is waiting. But I think that the same sentiment is often how our legalism prone hearts feel about our walk with God. If we're sincere enough, if we are earnest enough, If our faith is strong enough, then God will show up. He'll work in us and he'll work for us. But Paul's understanding of Jesus' love and grace should help us shed that skin. Paul refused to nullify the grace of God, he said. Instead of his trust becoming a work or a performance, it was merely a reaction to the overwhelming love and grace of Jesus. Of course I'm gonna trust Jesus. Look at his love. Think of who he is. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said it this way. He said, it's not what you feel that will save you, but what Jesus felt. I love that. All right, so this is the gospel life as Paul described it. This is what he was hoping would flow out of Peter's life. He was saying to Peter, look, there's a certain thing that should come out of a person who's holding fast to the gospel. First of all, you are set free from the legal code, and now you're free to live for and to God. You're not living for these legalists down in Jerusalem. You're not shackled up by anybody putting some kind of legalistic framework upon you, but you're living freely before God. So serve him, not others. And then Paul says, and this is a life where It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives through me. Paul, Peter, this is a, a life where God's power is flowing in you and through you. You died on the cross with Jesus, and now you're new in him. And this is a brand of life that is gained by ongoing and persistent faith in Jesus, faith in him, trust in him every single day. And I think what I want to say as I wrap it up is is simply this. This is a life that must be energetically entered into. If we are passive about this, we will rebuild laws and codes that contradict God and his word. If we are passive, we won't see ourselves as completely identified with Christ and his death and resurrection, but in some other way. And if we're passive, we won't enjoy the simple devotion of faith and trust in Jesus every day of our lives. You know, when they brought sacrifices to God in the Old Testament era, the worshiper put their hands on the sacrifice. And for many of the sacrifices, after they were slaughtered and then cooked, they would then eat the sacrifice. They were 
hands-on, in other words, with this substitution. And I think for us as believers, we have to put our hands onto the gospel, our hands onto the sacrifice, aggressively and intentionally, because if we don't, legalism will flow, and we will not live in line with the gospel.